0: This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
1: A federal judge blocked the McQuanago School District from enforcing their recently adopted bathroom use policy, which would have forced students to use the bathroom consistent with their sex assigned at birth. The move comes as the result of a lawsuit filed by a trans student and her mother against the school district, located in southeastern Wisconsin, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Under current judicial interpretation, Title IX protects trans individuals from being forced to use bathrooms that don't match with their gender identity, following a Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals decision back in 2017 that was quite similar to this case. However, a recent decision from the 11th Circuit Court contradicts that decision, setting up what is likely to be a Supreme Court decision on the issue.
0: Governor Tony Evers authorized the Wisconsin Department of Veteran Affairs to study the finances of the three state-run veterans' homes after reports that the homes have been seeing significant revenue shortfalls. According to the Capital Times, the study was originally drafted by the Republican-controlled legislature to only investigate the largest veteran's home located in Wapaka County, but the governor used his partial veto to expand the scope of the study to all homes. The study is limited to investigating the finances of the homes and does not extend to investigating the quality of care at the facilities, despite repeated complaints that the homes have been cutting back on services like medical care. The number of enrolled veterans in the homes has been dropping, adding to the fiscal strain.
1: Epic Systems has filed new plans with the city of Verona to begin construction on an additional five buildings and a new parking garage, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Epic has been expanding its facilities in Verona in a near constant stream of construction since 2003 and its workforce has expanded significantly since 2018. Epic will announce details of the project in August around its annual customer conference and software launch.
0: A Madison Mallards game on Sunday had to be rescheduled following the death of an umpire who died en route to the game. The umpire, who had officiated more than 300 Northwood League games, died in a car crash on the way to the game, according to NBC15. Northwoods League umpire Connor McKenzie joined the league in 2019 and has been on the field for each All-Star and postseason game during his four seasons with the league. A moment of silence before tonight's game will honor his memory.
1: The Carey Group, a commercial real estate company here in Madison, has released a plan that would demolish the Vintage Spirits and Grill Bar on University Avenue and replace it with a 12-story residential building. The proposed building, which would cater to high-end student housing, would hold 33 market rate units, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Vintage grill will be allowed to stay until construction begins, although it would eventually be relocated. The proposed plan is scheduled to be presented to the city's Urban Design Commission this Wednesday, with construction set to begin in 2024. And now, on to today's top stories.
0: Last Friday, a Dane County judge made the first of what is presumed to be many rulings in the lawsuit looking to overturn Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban, allowing the lawsuit to continue. In her ruling, the judge said that the lawsuit can continue because the law in question is not actually an abortion ban. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more.
2: A Dane County judge ruled last Friday that the lawsuit looking to overturn Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban can continue and that, quote, there is no such thing as an 1849 abortion ban, end quote. That lawsuit was filed by Attorney General Josh Call last summer against the district attorneys in three counties where abortion services were available, Dane, Milwaukee, and Sheboygan. The ban, originally written in 1849, criminalizes doctors providing abortions unless it's to save the life of the mother. While the ban has remained on the books in state law, it was unenforceable for nearly 50 years because of federal protections guaranteed under Roe v. Wade. Sheboygan County District Attorney Joel Ormanski is the only DA in the case who says he would prosecute abortion providers. He called for the lawsuit to be dismissed. In Judge Diane Schlipper's ruling last Friday, she said that the lawsuit can continue in part because the law in question is not actually an abortion ban at all. In her decision last Friday, Judge Schlipper says, quote, There is no such thing as an 1849 abortion ban in Wisconsin. A physician who performs a consensual medical abortion commits a crime only after the fetus or unborn child reaches viability. End quote. Judge Schlipper pointed to a 1994 case, State v. Black, in which a man was charged under a subsection of the abortion law with feticide after a man allegedly attacked his then-pregnant wife, killing her nearly full-term baby. That case made its way to the state Supreme Court, which found that the law, which had been interpreted as a ban on abortions, actually only concerns feticide. Schlipper argues that feticide is distinctly different from consensual abortion, defining feticide as the act of killing a fetus, usually by assaulting or battering the mother. While Armansky’s lawyers argued that that interpretation only applies to the second half of the statute, Judge Schlipper questioned the logic while hearing oral arguments last month.
3: So if I compare that to 90, uh, 940.04 1, the statute issued here, I would be repeating myself. There's only two differences. The, I believe the use of the word quick and the classification of the felony.
4: Does the circuit court have the authority to overrule, modify or withdraw the language from a binding Supreme Court decision?
2: The ruling has drawn praise from Democratic lawmakers across the state. Governor Tony Evers took to Twitter Friday to call the ruling, quote, a critical step in our fight to end our state's criminal abortion ban and restore the reproductive freedom women had in Wisconsin until SCOTUS overturned Roe last year, end quote. Attorney General Josh Call called the ruling a major victory Friday in a press release, saying that even though this isn't the final ruling, the wording of the decision makes it clear that the statute should not be interpreted to criminalize consensual abortions. Democratic Representative Lisa Subeck of Madison agrees with Call, saying that while there are certainly more arguments to be had, the judge's decision is a positive step forward.
3: Obviously, the judge's ruling at this point is not a final ruling on the case, but it does allow the case to proceed. And certainly the the rationale behind the ruling really confirms what we have believed all along and, you know, fundamentally what what I think should happen. So it gives me reason to be hopeful.
2: Democratic Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard agrees.
3: It is awful exciting
1: to folks who are watching this case move forward and, you know, based on the language that the judge used, I think people are foreshadowing that there's a lot of hope for people in Wisconsin in addressing uh, this egregious ban of abortion in our state.
2: Last Friday's decision only ruled on whether the case could continue and did not rule on the merits of the case itself. The case is expected to make its way all the way to the state Supreme Court, which starting next month will have a liberal majority when Justice-elect Janet Protoziewicz takes her position on the court. Protoziewicz has repeatedly and vocally stated her support for abortion rights leading up to this spring's election. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggyhout.
1: The City of Madison Engineering Division is looking for volunteers to stop an outbreak of outbreak of spongy moths in the area. In Madison, oak trees around the city have exhibited signs of stress associated with spongy moth activity. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources warns that the next two months could bring the worst spongy moth caterpillar outbreak seen in more than a decade. WORT reporter Charlie Belaski has more.
5: City of Madison officials are asking the public for help in stopping an outbreak of spongy moths. Spongy moths are a small moth species known for their spongy egg clusters, which are laid in the fall. The moth was introduced over 100 years ago from Europe for research and silk production. Those that escaped captivity bred quickly and have since been a pest to local tree populations. According to data from the U.S. Forest Service, spongy moths were first sighted in Wisconsin in 1998. In particularly dry summers, spongy moth populations can spike to higher than average numbers. This can result in defoliation of a number of tree and shrub species. The larvae are around two inches long and can be identified by the blue and red spots along their backs. Adult spongy moths are small and have a one inch wingspan. They vary in color from brown to white. Due to recent drought conditions, city officials are asking for any volunteer assistance in eradicating the invasive pests. To prevent the spread of the pest, city officials offered free burlap on Saturday to volunteers to wrap around affected tree trunks. The caterpillars climb onto the burlap instead of the tree, which is then removed and disposed of moths and all. The burlap will be removed in late August. Spongy moth caterpillars have been known to cause skin irritation on contact, so gloves are recommended during removal. Volunteers can also help by surveying affected areas for tracking purposes and eliminating any caterpillars or egg clusters that are found. City officials ask that volunteers not use chemicals or other methods for spongy moth removal because said chemicals can affect other species of insects as well. There is still an abundance of burlap and twine available and volunteers interested in helping are urged to pick up what they need at 1600 Emile Street from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Charlie Bilowski.
1: Last week, Governor Tony Evers signed the state's next two-year budget, including with it 51 partial vetoes to the document put forward by Republicans. One of those partial vetoes drew headlines as Evers used his veto pen to extend increases in public school funding for the next 400 years. And while that move did draw ire from legislative Republicans, the move is not only seemingly fully legal, but has a long history of precedent behind it. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Tyler Katzenberger, state capitol intern at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel,
2: about the veto. Now, Tyler, kicking things off here, last week, Governor Evers extended increases in funding for public schools in Wisconsin for the next uh, about 400 years. Now, how how was he able to use his veto powers to accomplish this?
3: Yeah, so it's a move that looks a little bit wild on the surface, and I know it certainly sparked a lot of talk on Twitter, especially from folks who aren't from Wisconsin, but... Wisconsin governors have some of the most far-reaching, partial veto powers, really of any governor in the nation. Um, And so what Governor Evers did is employed uh, what are called digit vetoes, so striking numbers, and um, also employed editing vetoes, so striking individual words, to uh, strike numbers and words out creatively from something the legislature gave him, uh, to make it read, for the limit, for 2023 to 2425 add $325 to the result. So basically increase the amount of money that a school district can raise per student by $325 each consecutive year until the year 2425. It's a little unusual, but the governor can uh, eliminate numbers and words to basically change the meaning of a sentence. And it's something that, have, that has happened in Wisconsin politics before.
2: And we will get into some of the past instances of that in a moment here. But first, I want to talk there's a lot of talk of two other types of vetoes uh, called the Vanna White Veto and the Frankenstein Veto. And this is not considered either of those, correct? Uh, can you sort of lay out for me what both of those vetoes are and why they don't apply to this situation?
3: Yeah. So first, they're pretty creatively named. Um, the Vanna White Veto, uh, named after Vanna White's uh, Wheel of Fortune fame. Um, what that does, or what it was basically, was that a governor could eliminate individual letters in a word to basically create different words. So again, like flipping letters on a wheel, on the Wheel of Fortune. Um, in this case, the governor didn't do that. Um, the Vanna White veto was uh, outlawed before. Um, it was something that previous governors had used. It's not available to Governor Evers, but what he did is eliminated entire words, which is okay. The other type of veto, a Frankenstein veto, is where you eliminate words from multiple sentences, but then string what's left together into one sentence. Um, Again, you're kind of like sewing and stitching up different sentences to create a new one, hence the name Frankenstein Veto. But again, here, Governor Evers, his edits were contained within one sentence, and so that's not a Frankenstein Veto.
2: And now, as you mentioned before, this is not the first time a Wisconsin governor has used their partial veto power like this. I know both former Governor Scott Walker and Jim Doyle used similar partial vetoes in the budget there. Uh, What can you sort of tell me about those situations and maybe any other interesting partial veto situations in the past?
3: Yeah, no, there have been some really interesting scenarios. So I know you mentioned Jim Doyle. Uh, What he did is he used his partial veto authority in the 2003 to 2005 state budget to increase the state's borrowing authority for highway projects from $140 million to $1 billion. And then, again, in the next budget, uh, he was able to transfer $427 million from the state's transportation fund over to its general fund and then direct a lot of that money to public schools. And as for Governor Walker, um, so, again, this isn't contained to a specific political party. It's something that any governor can use. Scott Walker did what we called the 1,000-year veto. So essentially what he did is during the 2017 to 2019 state budget, he used partial vetoes to turn the deadline to end a program allowing school districts to raise revenue limits for energy-efficient projects from 2018 to 3018. And then in that same budget, he used another veto to delay the start date of another separate program to 2078 from 2018. So again, um, that's another example of a governor Using a digit veto very creatively to extend deadlines uh, for different types of programs. Yeah, so basically, governors have used this for quite a while and in pretty creative ways. And, well, uh, you know, what Evers did is obviously eye-catching. It's certainly not something that's unusual in Wisconsin politics.
2: And in either of these two situations that we just laid out, were they any different from what Evers did last week
3: Uh, To my understanding, no. Um, They both use the same um, digit and editing vetoes. Uh, The one difference with uh, what Governor Evers did is that he struck a hyphen. You know, it was a little bit questionable whether or not a hyphen was something that the governor could strike. Uh, But we did reach out to the Legislative Reference Bureau, and it seems like that is something that Governor Evers can do.
2: And now I want to talk a little bit about the legality of all of this. The state Supreme Court has uh, ruled to similar things like this. What do what the courts have to say about these types of vetoes?
3: Yeah, so the Supreme Court hasn't really come to a great agreement um, on these types of vetoes. The Vanna White veto and the Frankenstein vetoes, um, we talked about those before. Those used to be legal, um, but those were struck down through a constitutional amendment rather than the courts. And while there was a court ruling that Ebers had overstepped his bounds with some budget vetoes in 2019, the exact effect of the ruling isn't super clear because the justices couldn't really rally or unite behind specific rules about what types of vetoes are allowed and which ones aren't. In that ruling, conservative justices tended to be a little more narrow in their interpretation, um, while some liberal justices tended to be a little bit more expansive. Um, and it's really hard to determine how any future cases might play out uh, because obviously, we have new justices on the courts, or Court is obviously going to flip to a liberal majority uh, this coming August, too. Um, and so it's really hard to predict how they might rule on a future case, considering we've already had inconsistency in the past.
2: And sort of going off of that, we may get a sort of more definitive answer on the legality of this soon. As Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said over the weekend that the GOP was preparing to sue the governor over this, correct? What can you what can you sort of tell me about this?
3: Yeah. So Assembly Speaker Robin Voss did say um, that they're preparing to sue the governor. Again, though, from what we've heard from the Legislative Reference Bureau, um, it seems like what Governor Evers did, at least specifically with the education veto, uh, was legal. Um, I know they had a little bit of a question about whether or not it would be legal because um, the governor didn't put, or he eliminated the word school year, so it just says from 2023 to 2425. Um, it didn't specify school year at the end, and obviously we're dealing with education funding. But it sounds like he clarified that in his veto message, and so it seems, it seems like it could be legal. Um, I don't want to give a definitive answer on that. Obviously, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a Supreme Court justice. But, you know, I, I won't say uh, how I think that lawsuit might turn out. Um, again, I'm not a lawyer, not a Supreme Court justice. But, yeah, it does look like Republicans are challenging it. Um, and so what I can say from that is it seems like Republicans are not happy with what Governor Evers did with his partial
2: vetoes. And how is this whole situation with, you know, how— these partial vetoes have been used in the past. How has this sort of changed how lawmakers in the, both the Senate and Assembly have sort of changed how they word their, their budgets and their laws in general?
3: Yeah, so it's really become a game of, you know, who can be more creative with their wording. Um, obviously, Governor Evers was pretty crafty, whether for better or for worse, uh, depending on how you feel with what he did with his partial veto to extend school funding by over 400 years. Um, But Republican lawmakers, too, kind of thought ahead of time on some of this stuff. And so, for instance, uh, the word may not is something that is sometimes common in legislation. Somebody may or may not use funding for something. But since may not is two words, the governor could go in through uh, with his partial veto and strike the word may. So that way, um, a line would read not the exact opposite of what the legislature intended. So what Republicans did uh, before the bill ended up going to the governor is going back and changing a lot of those may nots to cannot with this one word. And therefore, the governor uh, wouldn't be able to strike the can in front of it uh, because he can't. That would actually be an example of a Vanna White veto because he would have to strike the three individual letters. And obviously, as we know, that's not something that's legal. So there are ways to get around it. If whoever's writing the budget from the legislature is um, thinking it through, But, yeah, again, like I said, it's really a game of semantics here, and it certainly does uh, challenge folks to be creative.
2: And, Tyler, we have talked a whole lot about political semantics here, but do you have just any final thoughts on this whole situation before we go here?
3: Generally, I would just say um, that, again, this is something that seems, I think for some folks who aren't super in tune with Wisconsin politics, very strange and very odd. And over the years, there have been critiques from both sides um, claiming that this type of veto is too far-reaching, too powerful or anti-democratic. But there have also been folks saying that it's perfectly fine and perfectly legal, which under Wisconsin's constitution, it is. it was actually first and stated uh, as a constitutional amendment approved by voters uh, nearly 100 years ago. And so, yes, we've seen it before. It's caused controversy before. We're probably going to see it again, and it'll probably cause controversy again sometime down the line, whether it's the next budget cycle or a budget cycle 30, 40 years from now. Um, Unless something drastic changes, we'll have this partial veto around with us for quite a while, and I'm sure it'll make for some pretty interesting stories.
2: I've been talking with Tyler Katzenberger with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about Governor Evers' 400-year partial veto he made on education funding last week. You can read more about this subject and of Tyler's reporting online over at jsonline.com. Tyler, thank you so much for talking with me today.
3: Thanks so much, Nate.
0: The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yesterday was the anniversary of the arrest of two student volunteers of the humanitarian organization No More Deaths, a group that provides aid to immigrants crossing the Arizona-Mexico border. The students were charged with two felonies for aiding two people who might have otherwise died in the desert. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has one story from the border and how our nation's policies got us there. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers
5: and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggled brave and long. For the union women standing up and
6: standing strong. Yesterday, July 9th, is the anniversary of the arrest of two student volunteers for the humanitarian group No More Deaths, a group that provides aid to immigrants crossing the Arizona-Mexico border. The year was 2005. They were charged with two felonies for helping three undocumented immigrants get needed medical care. No More Deaths responded with a campaign. Humanitarian aid is never a crime. Charges against the two, Shanti Sells and Daniel Strauss, were eventually dropped. The next year, the two were awarded the Oscar Romero Human Rights Prize by the Rothko Chapel in Houston, Texas. 853 people officially died across the entire border in the 2022 fiscal year. This is likely an undercount since it doesn't include those bodies found by other agencies or those missing in the vast desert. Many attempt to cross through the Sonora Desert. In Puma County, Arizona, Where No More Deaths has its headquarters, Strauss and Sells talked about their experience in a 2006 interview on Democracy Now. No More Deaths had 24-hour first aid stations out in the desert, and we would go out daily looking for migrants. Who were in distress, driving the roads, walking on the trails, and every day we would encounter migrants who were sick, needed help, called Strauss. On the day of our arrest, we had encountered nine migrants in a group. They had been in the desert for four days, two of which were without food or water. It was the week that was the deadliest week on record in Arizona history. 78 migrants died during that week. It had been over 100 degrees for 40 straight days. No more death volunteers were well known to the Border Patrol. All the actions were open, their vehicles labeled. The group had been active for over a year. The day before, they had waved at the Border Patrol officers and the officers had waved back. They don't know what caused the change. In August, they were indicted and charged with smuggling, which carried a five-year sentence and a second felony for conspiracy to smuggle, which held a 10-year maximum sentence. So they could have been sentenced to 15 years in prison and a $500,000 fine. The campaign received worldwide support. Thousands of postcards were sent to the U.S. Attorney for Arizona demanding the charges be dropped. He never responded. The case went on for a year and a half while they continued to work with no more deaths. Hundreds continued to do the life-saving work. Strauss and the organization maintained no one should die for the reason of coming into this country without documents. Between 1995 and 2005, there were 5,000 known deaths of migrants. No more deaths than other groups have done a tremendous job saving some lives. It's never a crime to save someone's life, Strauss said. They were awarded $20,000 with the Oscar Romero Human Rights Prize, named for the El Salvadorian Archbishop who was assassinated March 24, 1980, as he spoke against the repression of his country and urged the soldiers to lay down their arms. Sells and Strauss donated part of their prize to no more deaths. Sells said, we faced prison time, and it was a very difficult process. But ultimately, we weren't facing death and murder like Oscar Romero did. But it's another example of the government wanting to silence people who are working to aid the poor and who are being kept down by the government. Another No More Borders Past volunteer is professor activist author Aviva Chomsky, who has written several books on the subject. Most recently, Undocumented, How Immigration Became Illegal. I would urge people to read her book. Chomsky talks about the history of laws and changing attitudes towards immigration and immigrants. Until the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, there were no real laws on immigration. Anyone could come to work, but only whites could become citizens, with the Chinese Exclusion Act, race became an explicitly authorized policy to ban people, combining racism and fear about the Chinese stealing American jobs. The job and race card have been deployed effectively over the years. Programs that let workers come temporarily for jobs, like the Bracero Program from 1942 to 1964, for all its flaws, allowed over 4 million Mexican workers to come to the U.S. and return home. But the 1965 immigration law made the program illegal. That reform, influenced by the civil rights movement, eliminated race as a factor for admission, but established quotas by nation, resulting in far fewer illegal admissions from Mexico and Latin America. Today, the militarization of the border has led to more undocumented staying in the country, afraid to leave because they might not be able to get back into the U.S. U.S. foreign policy and its corporate interests, have supported right-wing regimes, and extractive industries that have left millions in misery and led many to cross illegally into the U.S. This has led to the ongoing importance of no more deaths. Continued work. And that is our story for today. For the Past is the Past, I'm Harry Richardson.
0: At the end of June, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down President Joe Biden's student debt relief plan, leaving millions of student borrowers across the country with over a trillion dollars of debt. On today's A Public Affair, host Douglas Haynes spoke with Kat Welbeck with the Student Borrower Protection Center and Benjamin Lee from Ascendium Education in Madison about the current reality facing borrowers.
7: Give us a summary of the case the U.S. Supreme Court decided on. Who brought it and what were the arguments?
0: As you mentioned, just so a week and a
4: half ago, we got this decision that denied critical relief to 40 million people 40-plus million people across this country. And what we really saw was these this actually decision was hinged on two separate cases. And so, as you mentioned, shortly after the president announced his very critical student debt relief plan last August, we saw a lot of conservative attacks on student debt cancellation. And from that, we got two cases, one case coming out of the Fifth Circuit, a case coming out of Texas, about two um, student loan borrowers, actually, who were not eligible for the full amount of relief. And so they sued, say, saying, you know, there was an injury to us because the president didn't use the Administrative Procedures Act so we can provide notice and comment to say we should have gotten relief in this way. And so they brought this suit, and it made its way up to the Supreme Court. And then there was a separate suit brought in the Eighth Circuit um, based in six separate states where six attorney generals sued on behalf of Student Loan Servicer Mohila, saying there would be injury to their states if there was debt cancellation. And so when these courts, when the court heard these oral arguments and they issued their decisions last week, the first case coming out of Texas with the two student loan borrowers who said no one should get relief because we didn't get to make comments on this relief plan, the Supreme Court said there's no standing, there's no personal injury here, so you don't have a right to bring the case. In the second case, unfortunately, what we saw is the Supreme Court ruled with these state officials saying, you know, at least Missouri, who was one party to the suit, could bring this case because they had standing, because Mojila is based in Missouri. So they said that one chain allowed them standing and was able to say that then looking at the merits of the case as you mentioned douglas that and, and as nick mentioned in his comments that the president couldn't use his emergency authority to cancel student loan debt so where does that leave us now right i know people have a lot of questions so one two things one thing that's really important to know is i know we talked about majority ruling which struck down this plan but one really important note and what we saw from the dissenting judges justices so the justices who said you know this actually isn't right they actually said you know the Texas case, those two borrowers actually didn't have standing. But you know what? These states don't have standing to, believe, to, bring, to bring a case either because there was no real injury to them. So they shouldn't even be able to hear the case in the first place. I think that's one thing that's really important to note. But that Friday, we also heard from the president. He said, you know, the Supreme Court ruled very narrowly and said the president couldn't use HEROES Act authority. So, what we're actually going to see is the president is going to actually use authority from the Higher Education Act to bring a notice and comment rulemaking, which you can talk about a little bit more if people want to know the details, to still bring about this debt relief plan. So, he said, you know what? We can't do it this way, but we're going to try to get through it to another pathway.
7: Can you tell us a little bit more about your organization's position on the SCOTUS decision before we get into those alternatives
4: that Biden laid out? Most certainly. And I think our name gives away, and as you said in our title, we're an advocacy organization. So obviously, we were deeply disappointed by this the standing because we really saw the court you know, rule against what we saw was a clear standard of jurisprudence. If you don't have standing, if you can't prove an injury, then you can't bring a claim. But what we really saw is you know, the justices, um, the majority of justices ruling in favor of these these states, in this case, specifically Missouri, and really kind of going against what would seem to be the very clear letter of the law. Um, And so, but one thing we're really glad we've been really advocating and pushing for, you know, no matter what, the president continues to use all the tools in his toolbox to make sure that this plan gets over the finish line. And so part of that is now using this this new authority. And as he goes to this rulemaking, but one thing we really want to emphasize is how quickly he moves. And then we're going to talk a little bit about return to repayment. A lot of people are feeling anxiety, stress around this moment. And so we really think it's important, yes, for the president to uphold his promise, to use a new authority, but to also do that swiftly so that people can see this relief immediately.
7: Let's turn to you now, Benjamin, and pick up on where Kat just left off there with this anxiety about return to repayment. What does this decision from the Supreme Court mean for borrowers right now at this moment?
8: Yeah, so for a lot of borrowers that might have been thinking that they would have ten or twenty thousand dollars uh, forgiven, they now won't. Which means that that's ten or twenty thousand dollars at least that'll be going into repayment. And we know interest is going to start running um, September first, and that payments will start being due sometime in October. That's kind of the extent of the information we have right now. Part of President Biden's announcement was that there's going to be a year-long sort of on-ramp for repayment, which is essentially a hold harmless. You won't be able to go delinquent. You won't be able to default. You will not be negatively credit reporting if you are a borrower of a loan that's held by the Department of Education. Um, So that's some really good positive news for borrowers in light of what for many is obviously a, a pretty devastating decision from the Supreme Court.
7: And continue to lay out uh, what benefits our borrowers still entitled to as they face this restart. You mentioned the the slowdown. Anything else you want to bring in?
8: Yeah. So there's this administration has been doing pretty much everything that they think that is possible to sort of be pro-borrower. And obviously they're running into constraints from the Supreme Court, um, from Congress, but they're really trying to pull multiple levers at the same time to get borrowers all sorts of different kinds of benefits. And so there's a couple things that you know folks should be on top of. A big one is that there is a new income driven repayment plan, which is set, parts of it are set for implementation as soon as the end of this month. It goes by two names currently. It is both the repay plan, which already exists, but also save. So those are the two fun acronyms that people can use interchangeably. And it is by far the most borrower friendly IDR plan available. And so for folks that are, have, you know, thinking about getting back into repayment, you know, there's a couple of things that everyone should be doing. One is understand what kind of loans you have. You can go on to studentaid.gov, create a login if you don't have one. It'll tell you exactly what types of loans you have and who your servicer is for each of those loans. You should make sure that your contact information is up to date with that servicer so that they can reach you with important information about the restart, payments being due, all of that. I would also advocate for folks to check out federal student aid or FSAs. I'm going to try not to acronym uh, too much on this call or on the show. Um, Use the, the loan simulator to see which repayment plans you qualify for and what payments would be under each of those repayment plans. It's a really useful tool for modeling out how repayment might look for you. And then last but definitely not least, consider applying for an IDR plan, specifically repay if you qualify. It is a very borrower-friendly plan.
7: Tell us uh, again what IDR stands for, Benjamin.
8: Income-driven repayment. It's based on your family size and income. The idea being that that payment amount should be ideally affordable. We know it isn't always, but under this new plan, it'll be more affordable than it's ever been before.
7: I'm going to turn back to you now, Kat, and you previewed for us this more long term alternative that the Biden administration is looking at for bringing uh, debt relief to Americans who borrowed money to pay for college. Tell us a little bit more about that, how the Biden administration is exploring a new uh, legal avenue for providing debt relief.
4: So President Biden is going to use the Higher Education Act to actually do a negotiated rulemaking to implement the the debt relief plan, we're still, we still don't fully know the contours. We imagine that it would be similar to the plan that he announced last August, but the idea is to open a formal rulemaking process, and so um, to make sure bringing different stakeholders to the table to talk about the the program, and 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 this process again might take you know take months. We're trying to we still don't exactly know the exact timeline, but the point is he's trying to get this process started immediately. One thing that I real will add is one thing that's interesting about the negotiated rulemaking process is that, you know, the president, the, the Department of Education opens up a period of comment comments. So actually student loan borrowers can go to the Federal Register and submit comments to talk about how important this plan is. And one thing that we've seen and I think something that's so important when Benjamin was talking about entering repayment and you know talking about interest starting to accrue, talking about, you know, this really having real real effects on people's, people's pocketbooks. The whole point about, you know, there might be a more affordable payment option, but many people still can't afford that. And so it's really important for a lot of people who feel, the stress, the anxiety of this moment, and really sometimes that feeling of helplessness and and not seeing this progress move forward is also feeling that they can be engaged in this process. And so as we get the link to the Federal Register opening and comments, Douglas will be sure to share that with you. So if borrowers are interested in, in telling their stories, uplifting their experiences, talking about how critical that that $10,000, that $20,000 was going to be for them, and really life-changing in the sense of their, them being able to access you know ec- economic mobility. And so that is one thing I want to lift up, is that there is an opportunity for people to lift their voices and talk about how important this changes to them.
7: And Kat, to follow up, what do you see and your organization see as the promises and pitfalls of these proposals, these alternatives that the Biden administration has come up with sort of on the fly? Obviously, they've been planning for this, but you know, to the rest of us, it seems like, okay. now they're suddenly pivoting. What, what are the uh, advantages and disadvantages here?
4: One of the advantages, I think, is the first point is that the President is really trying to stick to this commitment of canceling the student debt. And so I think that's the first thing is that, you know, we've been pushing all these months, even while, you know, we are waiting on oral arguments to be heard, waiting on this decision, just saying no matter what, like there are other authorities that the president has, let's make sure that he uses them. And so I think one thing that's really important is seeing the same day that the decision came down, he said, okay, but we're ready for another plan. And we're moving forward. And so I think that's something really important for borrowers to know. And then two, what's one pitfall, it just takes a little bit longer. So initially, you know, We know that when the applications were shut down last fall, more than 26 million people had applied, 16 million applications have been approved. So, you know, so many millions of people were already on the cusp of of relief. And we think about getting, you know, 26 million out of 43 million people to do something in in a very quick, timely fashion. I think it really points to how important and how critical this program was to so many people. So I do understand, you know, people's frustrations and worries. And one of the pitfalls about, you know, rulemaking is that that process takes a little bit longer than people, you know, having already expected to see those balances go down before they return to repayment. So I think that is one thing. And so really great that Benjamin was offering, you know, advice and talking about what steps borrowers should take, because, you know, for many people last August, they didn't think they would be here and, and, and going back into repayment.
0: That was a public affair host, Douglas Haynes, talking with Kat Wiebeck and Benjamin Lee about last month's U.S. Supreme Court decision on student debt relief. That was just a portion of their full conversation, which can be found online at WORTFM.org. It's Monday, which means that contributor Harry Richardson takes a look at two new movies Polite Society is a fun new martial arts action comedy from Britain with Bollywood influences. And Nimona, an action-packed new animated movie about a high-tech future with knights and a quote-unquote monster with LGBTQ central characters.
1: I'm Rhea Khan.
2: I am going to be a stuntwoman. My sister Lena is the only person who believes in me. Want to help me with a vid for my channel? Please!
6: That was a clip from the Charlie for Polite Society by British writer director Nita Mansoor, a fun over-the-top martial arts action-comedy with a bit of science fiction thrown in. Our main protagonist is Rhea Khan Priya Kansara, as a London student aspiring stuntwoman. She has an older sister, Lena Ritu Arya, a frustrated art school dropout and her gorgeous eligible Dr. Salim Shah Akshay Kona. Ria becomes convinced that her sister's semi-arranged marriage will be a disaster for Lena. Initially, Ria just seems a little paranoid as she enlists her best buds, Clara Serafina Bebe and Alaba, Ella Bracoliri, in a series of misadventures to break up the happy couple. Meanwhile, Ria is trying to keep from being beaten up by the school bully, Kovacs. Shona Bei Nami. The cast is almost entirely women. Lena's would-be mother-in-law, Rihila Nimra Becha, steals every scene she's in. Rihila has some great lines like, behind every successful man is a very tired mother. Ria ultimately launches a bizarre plan to save her sister. There's a lot of action, some singing, and dancing. It's fun, over-the-top style is influenced by Bollywood, Hollywood, and some martial arts movies. The movie is also about sisterly love, sisterhood, family expectations, and loyalty. Nita Manzoor has done a British TV sitcom that sounds hysterical. We are Lady Parts is the adventures of an all women, all Muslim punk band. Polite Society is well worth watching. I got the DVD at my friendly neighborhood video store. Up next, a fun anime movie mixing knights, future tech, and a monster.
2: The Queen Killer is still out
0: there. Everyone is scared. He's a murderer. He's a monster. He's perfect.
6: And that was a clip from the trailer for Nomona, an enjoyable movie that mixes and stirs several genre tropes together for fun effect with good animation and a lively story. Nomona is directed by Nick Bruno, and Troy Quinn. It's based on the webcomic that became a best-selling graphic novel by N.D. Stevenson. The movie is set in a high-tech future of flying machines and deadly weapons. They live in a walled city on constant guard against a legendary monster. The city is run by a benevolent queen and protected by the institution, a group of hereditary fighters, adhering to the traditions of knights. Monk-punk, Stevenson calls it. That is until Ballester Boldheart, Riz Ahmed, comes along boldheart is a street kid who the queen meets and recommends for training he grows up to excel all the other candidates even ambrosius goldenloin his friend and lover boldheart receives his sword from the queen in the traditional ceremony but suddenly a deadly ray comes out fatally striking the queen much to Boldhart's horror. Boldhart, after losing his hand in a swift reaction from Goldenloin, is unceremoniously dumped in a cell. No one believes his innocence, not even Goldenloin. Boldhart is moping in his cell when Nimona mysteriously and energetically enters his life and offers to be a psychic. Nimona is very disappointed to find Bolthart didn't intentionally kill the queen and isn't an evildoer intent on overthrowing the kingdom. Nimona appears to him as a pink-haired teenage girl and offers to help him escape anyway, but he has a promise not to freak out. Bolthart reluctantly promises and Nimona changes into a series of pink animals, all more awesome than the next in an amusing and messy escape. She becomes, among other creatures, a rhinoceros, a gorilla, and finally, a whale. Bolthart, of course, freaks out the whole time. They go into hiding. Bolthart asks who she really is, a question Namona doesn't understand. She is just Namona. Early on, Bolthart asks, can you just be normal? I just think it would be easier if you were a girl. He asks when she reclines on the subway as a coral gorilla. Easier for who? She responds, and he assures her, for you. Other people aren't as accepting as me. This is all delivered in a light-hearted way, but one LGBTQ reviewer considered these words familiar to anyone who's been told they're responsible for the bigotry they face from others because they are too visible, too much in their basic existence. Stevenson, who transitioned between the time the comic came out, And the movie feels that, in retrospect, Nimona represents transness. All in all, a fun, entertaining movie with an LGBTQ-friendly theme. Sadly, this project was reportedly rejected by Disney. Fortunately, Netflix picked up this film and just started showing it. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
1: And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter tonight was Charlie Belaski. Welcome aboard, Charlie. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Douglas Haynes with A Public Affair, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show tonight, Nate Wegehout produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz.
0: And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.